Let's read that together. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Beloved congregation, brothers and sisters, some time ago I watched a program that dealt with herd mentality, with the inclination of people to be blind followers of others. The scientists did several experiments with various people in different situations. In one scenario, they had a speaker in an auditorium addressing several hundred people. The speech started off in a coherent fashion. But as the speaker got going, he started spewing all kinds of nonsense, stringing well-worn cliches together in a non-coherent manner. In the end, he wasn't making any sense at all. After the speech, he waited for the audience's response. Two people in the front stood up and started clapping enthusiastically. Soon others followed suit, and with only a few exceptions, in no time flat, all the people were on their feet, giving the speaker a standing ovation. After the crowd quieted down, <clears throat> a scientist informed the people that this was actually an experiment in group herd mentality. He told them that the first two people who stood up to applaud were actually actors planted there to do that. They wanted to see how the rest of the crowd would respond. Afterwards, they spoke to some individuals separately to find out why they stood up to applaud. Obviously, the speech did not warrant such a response. And they responded by saying that they did so because they thought that if others thought it was such a good speak, then, well, they must be right. They trusted the collective opinion of others. Also, they did not want to stand out from the crowd. They didn't want to appear as if they didn't know what was going on, so they followed along with everybody else. Brothers and sisters, God created us as social human beings to care about each other and about each other's opinions. We should not be an island to ourselves. It's important to be part of your group. 
but that should never translate into groupthink. The Apostle John says in his first letter that we must test all things to see whether they are from God. Why? Well, because we should never be blind followers of others. All people are sinful human beings with their own hang-ups and foibles, and therefore who never give a completely accurate picture of reality. And so sometimes you must stand out from the crowd and to think about why we're doing what we're doing. And that takes wisdom and discernment. It takes spiritual maturity. And sometimes it takes courage. For there is always a cost involved. By going against the flow, we may lose the support of loved ones. It could even cost you your career and your family or even your life. And that's what the Lord Jesus wants you and me to think about in the text of this morning. He wants us to consider the cost of following him. That's also the theme for this morning's sermon. It is consider the cost of following the Lord Jesus. And then we will see three things. We will see that you must be willing in the first place to give up your comfortable bed. In the second place, to go against the expectations of others. And then finally, to leave your mortal family. So first then, you must be willing to give up your comfortable bed. In this text, we see that the time had come for the Lord Jesus to go to Jerusalem. The final stage of his ministry on earth was about to begin. At this point, the disciples of the Lord Jesus still thought that he would be like an earthly king, restoring the kingdom of Israel. As we know from Acts 1 verse 6, that is what they thought right up to his ascension. They thought of Jesus' greatness also in an earthly sense. And that is why they were angry when the village they wanted to lodge in rejected Jesus. They asked Jesus for permission to pray for fire to come from heaven and to consume them. But then Jesus rebukes them. They did not understand his mission. They did not understand how his kingdom is established on earth. It is not established by violence or rebellion. No, it is one of personal sacrifice for the sake of God's eternal kingdom. And then follows a conversation with three possible followers. And then in that, Jesus takes all this important principle to a higher level. Luke recounts that as they were on the way to Jerusalem, that a would-be follower who, as we know from Matthew 8, was a scribe, a teacher of the law, that he tells Jesus that he will follow him wherever he goes. No doubt this scribe had already committed himself to the Lord Jesus, for he had been following him already for some time, but now he is eager to make that final commitment. 
But why? What drives him to make such a decision? Does he realize what it takes to follow Jesus? What is involved in such a journey? It appears that he is so eager to follow him because he thinks like Jesus' disciples, namely that Jesus will triumph over evil in the way that the world does by the use of the sword and by other worldly means. And evil, to the mind of the Jews, came in the form of foreign nations that oppressed them. And they are waiting for God to send them someone who would deliver them from those foreign powers. And this scribe now thinks that Jesus is the man to do that. No doubt Jesus was fully aware of what this man was thinking. For note well how he answers him. In his answer, he refers himself as the Son of God. Now, that expression has special meaning for the Jews. According to Daniel 7, verse 14, the Son of Man would defeat foreign powers. He would be the greatest ruler the world would ever see. And that's the one they were waiting for. But now what does Jesus tell him? Well, he indeed identifies himself as that son of man. But then, instead of referring to his power, he speaks about his weakness, his lowliness, and about the fact that the world does not want a man such as that. And that's new to this scribe and to the people following him. That's not the kind of son of man they had been waiting for. For listen to what Jesus says. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Oh sure, the son of man will defeat all the worldly nations, but not in the way that this scribe thinks. Not as a conquering hero, but as a man of sorrows. In effect, he is saying to them, well, if you want to follow me, then please realize what you think will be and what kind of kingdom I will establish. My kingdom is not of this world. This world does not want me. The world does not want that man of sorrows. The world wants nothing to do with that kind of hero. And the same thing is true of any would-be follower. They too must be willing to let go of their comfortable place in society. That's what God's kingdom is all about. At any time, they must be willing to let go of their comfortable bed. A follower of Jesus will not find a comfortable resting place here on this earth. And that's what Jesus and his disciples had just experienced when the people in that Samaritan, Samaritan village rejected him. They did so because Jesus was going to Jerusalem, to the Jews. They wanted him to be their king. And so they didn't want him. And so Jesus says that even the foxes and the birds of the air have their, own, have their own holes 
and nests on this earth, but not so the Son of Man. Now the obvious meaning about the foxes and the birds is immediately evident. However, this saying of Jesus will have been understood by his disciples also in a different sense, a political sense. A nation under siege, as Israel was, will refer to their oppressors in symbolic ways. For you do not want to risk provoking your enemy unnecessarily. A nation in the position of Israel would not be allowed to speak ill of their leaders. That's how it works in dictatorships. Any assent, any dissent and criticism is not tolerated. It can cost you a lot if you criticize those kinds of rulers. And so the word fox had more than one meaning, a derogatory one. And that's clear from what we read elsewhere in Scripture. At one point in Luke 13, verse 22, Luke 13, verse 32, Jesus referred to King Herod Antipas as that fox. A fox is known as a very clever and cunning animal, and such animals could do a lot of damage. From their lairs, which were no more than burrows in the ground, they would make their nightly raids, hunting, not only for small animals, but also devouring eggs and fruits and devastating the fields, orchards, and vineyards. And so you could see how Harold would be called a fox. He's very clever and cunning. He did a lot of damage. He also has a lot of power. And the Roman soldiers, well, they also had a nickname. Because they had the eagle as their symbol, they were often referred to as the birds of the air. And so the Lord Jesus is saying to this wannabe followers that those who go along with Herod and the Romans will have a comfortable bed to sleep in, just like a fox and a bird. They will not be easily uprooted and will have a comfortable home here on earth as long as they go along with things. But that's not the way it is for the Son of Man and those who follow him. And so the message to them is, if you think you can follow me, then please realize what you leave behind. For you cannot be part of this world and of the world that I am offering you. You cannot remain in your comfortable bed and still follow me. The one excludes the other. For the world seeks earthly comfort and thinks that this world is their resting place. But I offer you heavenly comfort, eternal comfort. My kingdom is beyond this sinful world. And so if you want influence and power and fun now, then follow the birds who are here today and gone tomorrow. Follow the fox who manages his own worldly affairs with considerable cunning and deceit. But in their world, the Son of Man stands powerless and alone because that's not how he conducts himself. And that will also be your fate if you follow him. And so he says to them, which are you going to choose? 
their world or mine? We're not told what decision this would-be follower made. He does not answer. As is more often the case, we are left in suspense. But the point is made. He wants all his disciples, including you and me, to think about this. For the same thing applies today. If you want to blindly go along with the world and partake of its sinful practices, then you cannot be a follower of the Lord Jesus. You must be willing to leave behind all you have here on earth and throw in your lot with your Lord and Savior. For what does it mean to follow Jesus, brothers and sisters, and that includes you, boys and girls. It also means that today you are following a rejected leader. Oh, sure, this world takes the name of Jesus on their lips, and they do that especially on religious holidays. But in reality, they want nothing to do with that Jesus. They do not want anything to do with anything that he has to offer, nor with anything that he demands. This world hates Jesus and his followers. This world hates those who want to follow that man from Nazareth. His claims are too radical. His demands are too great. For he requires that you consider everything you have as secondary to him. Your money, your house, your possessions your children, your parents, your reputation. The world does not want to follow such a radical man. The question is, brothers and sisters, do you? And that's the question we have to continue to ask ourselves. The choices you make in life will also determine which way you are headed. And now to make a similar point, Luke also includes for us a second dialogue with someone who this time is not a volunteer, but who is a recruit. The Lord commands him to follow him. We come to the second point. From the from the type of command the Lord Jesus uses here, it is, a per, it is apparent that the person spoken about here is a new recruit. For Jesus says to him, follow me. He commands him. But then the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now you would think, to, think from this, as most people do, that this man's father has just died and that he just wants to go to his father's funeral. It is his intent that as soon as the funeral is over, well, then he will come back and then follow Jesus. And so this seems like a reasonable request, doesn't it? But now consider the climate and the culture in which this took place. A burial in those, in that culture took place very quickly, normally within a day. That is even the case today in the Middle East. For in a hot climate, the body decomposes very quickly. And so his father had just died 
what is this man doing on the road talking with Jesus? You would expect that he would be preparing to bury his father, wouldn't you? No, his father didn't just die. This man is referring to something which still lies in the future. And that is clear from the meaning the phrase has in the Middle Eastern culture of that day. According to the culture, this phrase, let me go and bury my father, means let me go and serve my father while he is still alive. And after he dies, I will bury him and be free to come. To bury one's father is a traditional idiom that refers specifically to the duty of the son to remain at home and to care for his parents until they are respectfully laid to rest. The culture of that day required the son to stay close to his parents and to take care of them in their old age. Only once he has buried his parents can he consider other options. In Middle Eastern society, that is still the case. When, for example, a family discusses, discusses immigration, at some point in the conversation, someone will ask, aren't you going to bury your father first? Typically, the prospective immigrant would be in his early 30s, and the father under discussion would be expected to live still another 20 or 30 or more years. And then the question is, are you going to stay until you have fulfilled the traditional duty of taking care of your parents until their death, and then consider immigrating? That's what's expected. You do not just leave your parents to their own devices. No, you look after them to the very end. For that is what your friends and your relatives expect. And so what then is this man saying exactly? Well, he is saying to Jesus, my community is making certain demands of me, and the pull of these demands is very strong. Surely you do not expect me to go against public opinion and to violate the expectations of my people. Surely you do not expect that I, against, that I go against everybody's wishes and that I now go off and leave everyone in the lurch. Yet, that's exactly what Jesus did require. For he says to him, let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, let those who are spiritually dead look after themselves. You, however, must go and proclaim the kingdom of heaven. It's also what the Lord Jesus expects from you and from me. The opinions of your friends and relatives do not come first. You have to go your own way. Parents do not come first. God alone does. Everything and everyone is subservient to him. Of course, that doesn't mean that Jesus expects you to turn your back on everything, including your own family, your aging parents even. Jesus is not saying that. For else he wouldn't contradict himself. Throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus expects children to respect their parents and to take care of them. But what he is saying is that their care should not take precedence 
over God's kingdom. You may not use that as an excuse not to be involved in kingdom work. No, you first always have to follow your Father in heaven. And that's also clear from the third dialogue recorded by Luke. We come to the third point, namely that you must be willing to leave your mortal, your earthly family. Like the first person, this wannabe follower of Jesus boldly offers to follow Jesus all the way. But he also comes with a condition. He says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. What exactly is he asking here? Again, we must take into account the culture of that day, for in these days you did not just leave home. It's not like today where kids say when they are at a certain age, Mom and Dad, I'm old enough now and I want to do my own thing. I can do what I want and leave home anytime I want and you can't stop me. Such an attitude was completely foreign to the people of that culture of that day. No, in those days, the father of the house ruled supreme. A father's permission was required to leave the home or to take on a new venture. You did not make decisions on your own, especially not if that affected all of the family. Even if you already married yourself and had a family of your own, you would still ask permission from your family and especially from your father. Apparently, that gentle formality is still practiced all over the Middle East. The one who leaves asks permission to go. He asks, with your permission, may I go? And then if the family that remains behind agrees, they would say, may you go in safety, or God go with you, or may you go in peace. And with those words, permission would be granted. And so what is this aspiring follower asking to do? He is asking Jesus the right to go home and ask permission from his family to follow him. However, all those listening to this man knew that this was actually an excuse. For they knew that any father in his right mind would not give permission to let his son go off on some questionable enterprise. So the man's excuse is ready-made. Shedding crocodile tears, he can loudly insist that he wants to go, but his father won't let him. But the people knew that his apparent loyalty was an excuse not to follow Jesus. An old translation of this verse reflects the intent of this young man very accurately. That translation reads, let me first explain my case to those in my house. And that translation shows that this young fellow was not asking to go home and plant one last fond farewell kiss on his father's cheek and to hear words of encouragement from his mother as he was about to leave. No, in reality, he wanted the issue of following Jesus to be put to the authority of his parents. He is saying, 
I will follow you, Lord, but of course the authority of my father is higher than your authority, and I need his permission before I venture out. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus makes some very radical demands. He does not want you and me tied to anything in this life, not even your parents who brought you up. No, he says, your loyalty is first to me. If it isn't, then your loyalty is divided and then your heart is not in my kingdom. And that is why he also says on another occasion in Matthew 10, verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And now look at how the Lord Jesus answers this third would-be follower. He says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And again, in order to understand what this means precisely, you have to understand the agricultural practices of that day. And let me tell you of how a certain commentator by the name of Jeremiah describes it. He says, the very light Palestinian plow is guided with one hand. The one, this one hand, generally the left, must at the same time keep the plow upright, regulate its depth by pressure, and lift it over the rocks and stones in its path. And the plowman uses the other hand to drive the unruly oxen with a goad about two yards long, fitted with an iron spike. At the same time, he must look continually between the hindquarters of the oxen keeping the furrow straight. And this primitive kind of plow needs dexterity and concentrated attention. If the plowman were to be looking around, the furrow would become crooked. It would become a mess. And thus far the description. The image is strong and clear, isn't it? You need to pay close attention to what you're doing if you want to do a good job of plowing the field. You must be dedicated to your job. You must give it all you've got. If you do not pay careful attention, you're going to hit the rocks and ruin the plow. And if, you're not, and if you are constantly looking over your shoulder, your furrow is going to be very crooked and you won't be able to continue. For then the furrow will even be more crooked, and so on. If you want to have a properly plowed field, then you would have to start again from scratch. Well, says the Lord Jesus, that's how it is with the kingdom of God. Whoever wishes to follow me must break every link with the past. But don't look behind you like the wife of Lot did. You must be willing to let go of your bed. You must be willing to let go of your reputation within your own community, even your own family. They must all come in second place. You must not always be looking over your shoulder to see what others expect of you. No, you put everything to the test of God's word. 
you first see whatever, whether whatever endeavor you're about to undertake, whether that is in the interest of God's kingdom. Brothers and sisters, I don't have to tell you we live in a dark world, but we live in the midst of this dark world, but we are not part of it. We belong to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. There is a great cost involved in belonging to him alone. You must be willing to give up everything here on earth. For you know what awaits you, don't you? It is something that is so much greater, something which is so wonderful, something which will last forever and ever. But to follow Jesus also means something else, something really, really wonderful. It means to follow him who went to Jerusalem, not as his final destination, but from where he also took his exit. From there he ascended on high. For that is where his kingdom is. It is beyond this world. And that kingdom, of which we now already have a foretaste, is coming to earth. It's coming on that last day. Heaven and earth will be reunited. It's going to happen. We don't know when, but it will. It'll be wonderful. Brothers and sisters, that's where we're headed if we follow the Lord Jesus. He is directing us to that final destination. He is taking us to the time when heaven and earth are reunited. Follow me, says Jesus. Trust me. Walk a straight line. Don't follow the crowds and be ruled by public opinion. Let me rule you. Don't get attached to this world and the things of this world. This world is full of darkness. I am the light. Travel along with me and you will be safe. Let me lead you. I will never lead you astray and I will lead you to your final destination to be with me forever and ever. Amen.